Well, hopefully you're in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 7. And the title of my message this evening is From Every Nation. We are currently looking at the book of Revelation on Wednesday evenings in a series we've entitled Revelation, The Next Dimension. One of the cornerstone doctrines of the Christian faith is the belief in the return of Jesus Christ, the literal, physical return of Jesus Christ. Throughout the New Testament, the individuals, the disciples who walked with Jesus, who saw him ascend into heaven there in Acts chapter 1, lived in the anticipation of his soon return. In fact, in their writings, which are the New Testament books of the Bible, you get the distinct uh, picture that they believed that Jesus could return at any moment. Well, I am confident enough to say that we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than ever before. No one knows exactly when that time is going to occur. Nobody knows the day or the hour. So if you were here this evening hoping to discover that, I just want to let you down right from the beginning. We cannot determine that. Jesus did say that his disciples could be aware of the signs of the times, that indications in the world would allow for people to know that his return was imminent. Those signs are littered throughout the New Testament, and they are clearly articulated for us. And in the book of Revelation, we find that from chapter 6 to chapter 19, we get an in-depth look at an outline of the time leading up to the physical, actual return of Jesus Christ. What is going to occur just prior to his return is clearly articulated in these chapters. The chapters, though, contain incredible imagery that have often been the source subject of great debates and conversations. And it is a fascinating study to look at the imagery to help us to understand what the signs of the times may look like prior to his return. But the emphasis is always on the return of Jesus Christ. Just as the disciples lived in anticipation of the return of Christ in their day, so we as believers in Jesus Christ should also live in anticipation of his return today. Not knowing the day or the hour, but living accordingly. John wrote in his first epistle that those who lived in such hope, that is the hope of the return of Jesus Christ, would live a godly holy life. They would desire to. They would want to be found um, living the way God would have them live for his return. That was their mindset. That's the way they viewed the return of Christ. It was also in the hopes of him establishing the kingdom of God here on this earth. And Revelation tells us that after chapter 19, after a thousand-year period of time where Jesus physically reigns from the earth, on the earth, I should say, a new heaven and a new earth are created, and that's what we ultimately look forward to. Now, some of this might sound extremely outlandish to you if you haven't 
seen these things before or read the book of Revelation for yourself. But these things are in the Bible and they are meant for us to learn. In fact, the book of Revelation contains with it a blessing. Blessed is the person who reads these words and understands them, John writes to us at the end of this book. It is something that we're meant to know and we are meant to understand. And I'm going to tell you very, uh, very clearly up front that Christians vary on their opinions of the book of Revelation, and that's okay. These differing opinions, I would hope, stir a conversation that the conversation itself would keep in the back of our minds, or in, I should say, the forefront of our minds, the return of Jesus. Two people, two Christians discussing the events of the book of Revelation, I would hope that that conversation would keep um, the, at their forefront of their mind that Christ is one day going to return. It is the finality of Christianity. It is also a time where God deals accordingly with those who have rebelled against him. He deals with the world. He deals with Satan. He deals with those who have rebelled against him. It's a time of judgment. But in this time of judgment, there's also a time of redemption taking place. And out of this time of great tribulation, that's uh, that's what it's known as, this period of time. It's a seven-year period of time that is given to us by Daniel in his book in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. There's a seven-year period remaining. And the last three and a half years of that is known as the Great Tribulation period. And this evening, we're going to discover that even though the world is being judged by none other than Christ himself, God himself, there are going to be a multitude of people who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ and will enjoy eternity with God forever. On Sunday, I started a series called Goodbye God. And in that series, as I began to introduce it, I began to identify some of the difficulties Christians face today. And in, that, in those difficulties and the um, overwhelming uh, abundance of skepticism that there is in the world today, and as we agreed upon as a church, we would look at skeptics as an opportunity, not as an obstacle. We were going to take advantage of the scenario that a skeptic would create because Jesus always welcomed questions. I am never afraid of a question. I don't think anyone should be. But the backdrop that this is creating, this antagonism that many have uh, deemed towards Christianity has created, is a darkness that allows the gospel to shine even brighter. As the world darkens, as they try to abandon God in everything that we do, removing him from every social aspect, public aspect of our lives, a darkness is created that allows the gospel to shine even brighter. And I believe that's the same uh, with the book of Revelation. As As it's such a difficult, horrible time here on this earth, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ shines in that darkness even brighter than ever before. And people respond. 
And people are saved, even in this most difficult time. As we begin the seventh chapter, we have left off in chapter 6 with a question that was posed by John in verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come. That's speaking of the wrath of God, the wrath of the Lamb. That time of judgment has now come upon the earth. And we are left with a three-word question that almost has within it a finality in it of itself. And also it it would surely um, also contain an impossibility. Who is capable or who can stand in the wake of the outpouring of the wrath of God in this time? It is that question that John then goes to answer in chapter 7, which is almost an interlude in the book of Revelation. It's a uh, parenthetical. It's, it's a moment that he is now going to explain. He's going to give the readers hope that even in great difficulties, individuals will come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he is answering here. And it starts with three different groups of individuals. Angels, those who are sealed, and those who are saved. And we are going to be looking at this seventh chapter this evening, trying to look at and trying to understand what John is meaning by that in which he is writing. The book of Revelation was written by the Apostle John, the same uh, individual that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, is also responsible in around 94 AD for writing the book of Revelation while he is exiled on an island called Patmos because the Roman Empire had placed him there. You can go to Patmos to this day and discover the caves that John possibly sat within as he was given this vision. It's fascinating to, dis- and to, to see and to discover. And now John's going to answer that question for us. Who can stand? I like what Chuck Swindoll wrote, and I, I'm going to read it for you because he is so articulate in the way he states things. The staggering scene at the end of the sixth seal ended with people all over the earth rushing into caves screaming. Who is able to stand? Those panic screams echoed into the distance as Christ's thumb lingered at the seventh seal, the seventh and final seal of the scroll. Based strictly on the rapid fire judgments he had witnessed to that point, John might have reasonably concluded that the answer to that question was nobody. Not one soul will be able to stand. But we are going to discover differently. We are going to discover in chapter 7 that the angels hold back the judgment to allow a fifth angel to first begin by sealing what appears to be 144,000 individuals named specifically of each tribe of the nation of Israel. Then all of a sudden we're going to discover in verse 9 that there are multitudes saved. And we see that they are saved out of this 
time of great tribulation. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 7 and let's look at it together. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the son of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Ishkar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. And 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. But we begin with these four angels. And I agree with those who see these four angels most likely are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that we read in chapter 6 that were loosed in the first four seals of the scroll that Christ took from the hand of the Father and began to loosen the seals upon the scroll. That scroll was the redemptive conclusion of all creation. It was, the, it was the document that allowed God to once again regain authority and control and ultimate uh, a power over creation that had been forfeited by man when man fell and sin entered into the earth. As the cry went out in heaven, who is able to take the scroll from the hand of him who sat on the throne, no one of creation could respond. But then one like a lamb, Jesus himself, was able to take the scroll because Jesus and Jesus alone was worthy to do so. Why? Because he is God himself. He came, he died, he paid the penalty that we could not pay for ourselves. He saved us through his redemptive act on the cross and God validated that redemption by raising him up on the third day. Six seals were loosed immediately. And the seventh one is about to. But there's this question. Who can stand during this time? As in the sixth seal was loosed, we discovered, as John had wrote, that many went fleeing from the wrath of the Lamb and from God. And the question was posed, who can stand? But then there's a moment of pause. Allowing these angels to whisper to uh, restrain the judgment that is about to come on this earth. And in the Greek word for the, um, the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth, that word blow there is that it's a tempest that is being restrained. It's ready to go. But the angels hold it back, the four horsemen. Why do I believe it's the four horsemen? Zechariah 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 2 through 5 read as such. The first chariot had a red horse, and the second the black horse, and the third a white horse, and the fourth horse a dappled horse. 
all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked to me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are the going of the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So these horsemen are restrained restrained for a moment. A fifth angel then proceeds with the seal of God, the living God himself. And that word seal here means a mark. And we're going to talk about that mark a little bit more in just a moment. And he is instructed specifically to mark out 144,000 individuals before the judgment could be... uh, the judgment could occur upon the earth. What do these seals mean? As one wrote, I'm going to just read it for you. The seal on the forehead symbolizes protection and ownership of God's intention to protect the 12 tribes that are mentioned, much as he protected Noah from the flood, Israel from the plagues of Egypt, and Rahab from her household in Jericho. But there's also a passage in Ezekiel chapter 9, 1 through 6, where God states that an individual must be marked before judgment could take place to spare that one from the coming judgment that is to occur. So the concept of individuals being sealed is not a new concept that is first introduced here. In fact, if you go throughout the New Testament, you'll discover that Jesus himself was sealed by the Father. As John 6.27 reads, Jesus was sealed. God the Father has set his seal upon him. You and I have been sealed in the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a down payment of our eventual total redemption. As Paul wrote, God who has also sealed us has given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee The sealing of the Holy Spirit belongs to every believer when they are saved. Ephesians 1.13 says, Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So this sealing that is found in the New Testament is not a new concept. It means securing one. And here, more specifically, it means marking one out, very similar to that a case in Ezekiel 9, verses 1 through 6, that I'll allow you to read on your own when you have a moment. Now, the identity of these 144,000 has certainly been the subject of great conversations and debate. And there are two thoughts that occur here. Some believe that these 144,000 are simply allegorical references to the church. That these numbers indicate a completeness, a totality of the church, given a unique description here as the tribes of the sons of Israel. This concept of the 144,000 representing the church are held by those who believe, number one, that literal Israel no longer exists. The church has become spiritual Israel. And therefore, Israel has no part or role within the 
last days, and therefore this would have to resemble or represent the church. Secondly, this is also held to by individuals who believe that the church will be raptured at the end of the tribulation period. And therefore, this has to represent the church going through this time of great distress, through the time of the great uh, tribulation period, etc. I do find difficulties with that. I find difficulties because nowhere in the New Testament has the church ever been called from every tribe of the sons of Israel. I even debate that the church itself until A.D. 160 was never called Israel. Some believe that Galatians chapter 6 verse 16 references the church as the Israel of God. But I see two there. If you turn with me in Galatians chapter 6 verse 16, it is a very difficult portion of Greek. And this has again been debated by many Christians good Christians, loving Christians. In verse 16 of chapter 6, they who hold to this, what I would call covenantal theology, see here in chapter 6, of six in verse 16 of the book of Galatians, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. And he goes about those who will not, you know, um, find their justification in in uh, circumcision and etc. But then he goes on to say, and upon the Israel of God. Some believe that there's only one in reference here, but I believe that there is two in reference here, and that's what the comma and the word and is trying to demonstrate. This is technical, and it is difficult, But I do not see the church replacing Israel and the promises that are made towards Israel. I also reflect this when it comes to Romans chapter 11, when individuals say that when Israel rejected Christ, they forfeited their promises and God then completely divorced them and the church became the final unit in which God was going to use but that negates promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament prior to that point. And yet, Daniel seems to embrace the fact that Israel will exist. Jesus seemed to embrace the fact that Israel and Jerusalem would exist in the last days. And then in the New Testament. Now, James calls the Christians that he writes to the 12 tribes of the dispersed. I don't see that as being a reference to the church per se, but to the Christians who were Jewish. The Jewish, uh, the Christians who first became Christians were Jewish people. So this is why I am not, I'm not quick to go to the place, the state that this 144,000 is allegorical. And it just simply represents the church. Because it is so specific to me that God here seems to seal very clearly 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Take into consideration also that Israel is currently a nation again, which I think is one of the greatest fulfillments of prophecy. Now, I believe that that is the beginning fulfillment of Ezekiel 36. 
where God regathered his people into the nation of Israel as he said he would to set the stage for the last days. In the book of Revelation, we see a temple built in Jerusalem. We see the Jews back into their, into their land. And it would therefore have to um, make sense that he brought them back there for 100 years ago, 300 years ago, 400 years ago during the Reformation. Israel didn't exist. It was Palestine. So they undoubtedly didn't have that key component of information. And it would easily, uh, it would allow them easily to move into the idea that the church had replaced Israel, but now Israel's back again. Now again, these are good, well-meaning, loving Christians who are brothers and sisters in the Lord. I just differ with them on this opinion. But that being said, I have no exegetical reason not to take these things literally, right? There's no exegetical reasons. If I take this in an allegorical form, then I have to take... Uh, Revelation chapter 20, the thousand years in an allegorical. And that's exactly what they did. They didn't see a literal thousand year millennial period. They, they saw a, a figurative, they saw it allegorically. And as a result, they dismissed the idea of a millennial period. But now that's being re-embraced again as a millennial period. Again, in my research, I discovered that Israel being called, uh, the church being called Israel really started in the church fathers in 160 AD. So that's for your consideration. However, though, from a dispensational viewpoint, which I am taking, I do have a difficulty. A difficulty that's stated in Colossians 3, verse 11, where social. Uh, cultures and order has been eliminated because we are all one in Christ, right? We are, there's no more slave or free, Greek or what? Jew in Christ. Now, however, it seems like it's being reintroduced. I believe that the necessity and why this is being um, heralded here at this point and why we are being told this is because holding to a pre-trib rapture position, the church itself would have been removed which was the restrainer of the Antichrist himself, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now the necessity is for the sealing of these 12,000 of each of the 12 tribes of Israel, etc., for the proclamation of the gospel during the tribulation period. There's another issue. If that wasn't enough for you, some have asked the question, well, what about the differences in the tribes themselves? This is a fascinating consideration. There are 20 times in the Bible that the 12 tribes of Israel are mentioned in any kind of an order. There isn't a standard order, though. And some who are opposed to seeing this as a literal Israel or a literal 12,000 from each 12 tribes said, but look, there are tribes missing. And one went as far as to say that after the Assyrians dispersed the Jews, the tribes were lost, so how could, how could they ever be chosen from the 12 tribes of Israel? Well, I, I think God knows who's from what tribe. But that being said, what about some of the differences here? For example, one of the objections that they may raise is that Judah is before Reuben. The answer then would be, well, Christ came from the tribe of Judah, therefore allowing it to be listed first, possibly. And Reuben, in First Chronicles, gave his birthright away. 
But then Levi is mentioned, and Levi, the Levitical priests, had no mention here uh, of the, or I'm sorry, no inheritance, so why are they mentioned here, etc.? And why is the, uh, the uh, tribe of Dan missing? That's, that's the most fascinating one, the tribe of Dan. In Ezekiel 48, uh, verse 1, the tribe of Dan is mentioned going into the millennial period, but here it's omitted. Irenaeus came up with the idea that Dan was omitted because he believed the Antichrist was going to come from the tribe of Dan, and so John didn't want to write it. Most disagree with Irenaeus' conclusion, but I think it's interesting that even that far back, people were having this discussion. Dan also, we know very clearly, negated um, their right by moving into idolatry. Is that the possibility? Honestly, we just don't know why there's a difference, differing here of the 12 tribes. But that differing doesn't allow me to move from literal to allegorical, and it doesn't. Now, I want to tell you that as your pastor, I always go literal first, okay? I always go literal first. And then I look at the text itself to see if it allows for me to go to an allegorical position. And here, I just, I cannot move to that point. But again, what is the necessity? Why is God allowing us to know that individuals are needed to be sealed in the same way the church was sealed? Those in Christ were sealed by the Holy Spirit. What is the necessity? If the church is gone at this moment, then the necessity would be there and the Spirit of God then would be imparted or given in an individual manner rather than a collective manner as he was to, in the Old Testament. Boy, we talked about a lot there. Again, there are differing opinions. And the reason I bring all of this up is because there should be conversation concerning this information. We should all look at this and say, what does God want us to know from what he is saying? If either one of those positions don't suit you, then maybe we'll go with the third. And that is that the 144,000 are Jehovah's Witnesses. Can we just agree on that then and call it a night? The Jehovah's Witnesses believe that 144 of them 144,000 of them have been specifically selected for entrance into heaven. If you're not one of the 144, you are just going to remain here on this new earth. And if you're not a believer at all, you will then, you know, be annihilated for all eternity. That's what they believe. It is a fascinating study to look at the, this particular aspect of these 144,000 Again, within that number, the people have seen completeness or totality of the entire church. But I cannot personally move past the fact that it is so clearly spelled out that this does have to do with Israel. And therefore, I personally cannot move to a simple dismissing of Israel as the recipients of these seals, specifically as it is mentioned is here. But I state this again. This is by no means reason to divide from a believer who may believe differently. Let's have conversations. Let us talk it through. Let us enjoy our, our, our fellowship as Christians. But I do hold to this position that this 
does indicate that God seals individually 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation chapter 14, we are told more about these 144, how they are uniquely sanctified and separated unto God. And if you turn there with me, we'll read quickly a little bit more about these individuals. As John writes, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb with him, the 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the I'm sorry, I lost my place. And like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. And the voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women. They are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been redeemed from mankind, first fruits of God and of the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So we'll look at that more as we get there. But I want you to understand that there is a contrast being, um, being given to us here in this chapter, and that is a contrast with chapter 13. These 144,000 seem to stand in contrast to those who take the mark of the beast, which I also take to be literal. Some kind of marking on the hand or on the forehand, giving their allegiance and alliance to the beast, that is the Antichrist, and suffering under the wrath of God for doing so. And so you have those sealed by God, you have those given their alliance to the uh, Antichrist and to the devil, and you see that contrast that is marked there. Now, one who is reading this for the first time would be encouraged to know that God does know who are his. From the foundations of the world, we have been uh, sought by God, elected by God, and, and then saved by God. An incredible thing. And those going under, dealing with extreme persecution at that time would have been so comforted by this because they would know that they were sealed by God, kept by God. Again, the New Testament writers use this term sealed all the time. I do believe that there's a historical contrast that we must keep in mind also. And that had to do with the contrast between the Christian and the Roman citizen. The Roman Empire was enormous. If you have a chance to look at a map that indicates uh, by coloring of some sort how vast the Roman Empire was, you'd be astonished to discover how much territory at that time the Romans conquered. But if you were a Roman citizen and you carried with you the Roman seal, you could venture through that entire empire and be protected by the laws of the Romans and by the of course the emperor so anywhere you went throughout the Roman empire it didn't matter where you were originally from it didn't matter if you were even a person of 
who was conquered by the Romans, if you purchased your citizenship, that's how you would have to become a citizen at that time, you would then be given a scroll stating your citizenship and you could go anywhere you wanted in the Roman Empire and be protected by the Roman laws. Does that make sense? Now the Christians are understanding that they're sealed by God. And that seal carries with them the assurance that one day they will be with God for all eternity. And that God is with them. And those who hold to the fact that the Christians were, are going to need to go through the great tribulation believe that that sealing will protect them from the wrath of the Lamb who is to come. One who holds to the rapture happening beforehand, we believe we are removed before that. But understand the historical parallels there, allowing them to enjoy the citizenship of Rome. We are sealed with a seal that allows us to enjoy the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. So it would have been incredibly encouraging for them. Then we moved on to those who apparently come out of the great tribulation period, starting in verse 9. Again, some see these, this group of people as uh, the same as, I should say, the 144,000. I hold to the position that these are the individuals that receive the gospel possibly through the mission of the 144,000. And John says here, And after I, this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. In this we find individuals that are clothed in white standing before the, lo- the throne of God, before the Lamb, palm branches waving in their hands, very reminiscent of the moment that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and individuals were swaying in their praises of him with palm branches in their hands, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna of the highest. And as the, the Messiah ran, rode into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey, He was welcomed with palm branches and with that type of praise. That imagery is imagery of victory. The Jewish people at the first coming of Jesus Christ believed that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem at that moment on the donkey to set up the kingdom of God, to deliver them from the Roman oppression, to set them free uh, from the Roman tyranny. And so they welcomed him as a conquering victor. The imagery, though, was of him on a donkey, which was historically known for a king who comes in peace. But if a king were to ride in on a white horse, it was for conquering and for victory. In Revelation 19, the Lord comes back on a white horse, conquering and coming in victory. But here at the end, 
in this finality. Out of the great tribulation has come a multitude of individuals from every tribe, every nation, every peoples, every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white. So not only are they accepted by the Lord, they have been redeemed by the Lord, a metaphor that is used throughout the New Testament and consequently by the church to understand the saving work of Christ. The image is taken from ancient institution of slavery, which allows that a slave could be freed by being purchased, redeemed. And the New Testament sees Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as in some way freeing human beings from the bondages of sin by atoning for that sin. They are accepted, they are redeemed, they are joyful. In verse 13, we find that one of the elders addressed me saying, Now one of the elders, one of these 24 elders asks John, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And it was indicating that John didn't know and didn't recognize these individuals. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. One of David's prayers was found in Psalm 27, verses 4 through 6. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my life, the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent and he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his ten sacrifices with shouts of joy, and I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I thought of that psalm when I read this. As we will discover as the seventh seal is opened, leading to seven trumpet judgments, leading to seven bowl judgments, there will be a great multitude of people who come out of the great tribulation period who come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, they will be in heaven with him for all eternity. In verse 15, they are rewarded by allowing them to serve God for all eternity. Therefore, they are before the throne of God. And they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them. Notice how similar it is to David's psalm with his presence. They shall neither hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Remember when Jesus came into Samaria in John chapter 4 and he offered the woman at the well that living water? It was a glimpse of what was yet still to come. Ultimately fulfilled for all eternity, allowing 
the people who have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ to be with Jesus Christ for all eternity. John was asking the question, who can stand at this moment before the Lord? How is it possible that anyone could stand before the Lord? And here we see how it's possible. The grace of God working mightily in miraculous ways. And even in that last period of judgment, knowing that the finality was going to climax in the return of Jesus Christ, the gospel is still going forward, people are still coming to saving faith and enjoying eternity with God, even at that moment of judgment, the grace of God is still available to fallen man. It's an incredible act that began with Christ's first coming. Jesus says, I have not come to condemn the world, for the world has already condemned itself. I've come to save the world. I've come in to redeem people back to God the Father. And anyone who will come to me, anyone who will turn to me and and repent of their sins, which means asking for forgiveness from God for their sins, and then turning from those sins and believing and trusting in Jesus Christ can enjoy that eternal life unconditionally. Because Christ has done for you what you could not do for yourself. It doesn't matter how hard we try to be a good person before God, we will always and forever fail at that endeavor. It is only through Christ that we can have that salvation. And I want you to take away this truth, that even in the darkest hour of mankind's history, the grace of God is still going forward. Does that blow you away? It should. He's dealing with the rebellion of man. And many during this time will shake their fist at God and want nothing to do with him. But those who turn to him shall find faith, shall find Christ. And listen to that description and how they will enjoy all eternity. A great multitude from every nation out of the great tribulation period. This is an incredible and astonishing truth. And I have no doubt that John wrote this and he was given this as an encouragement to those who were suffering so greatly under the Roman Empire's uh, brutality and persecution at that time. And for you and I, we see here that the grace of God, this invitation to people still exists even as God has begun to judge the world. I don't know about you, but that deserves an amen, doesn't it? Amen and thank God. As we continue our look at the book of Revelation, Christ will be the centerpiece of it all. And though we can have differing opinions on some of the details of this book, as long as we keep Christ the centerpiece of it all, we can't go wrong. It is the revelation, the unveiling of Christ. That's what this is all about. Let us enjoy our discussions. Let us enjoy our time as we look at these passages together as individuals and as a church. Let us be discussing these things. The reason I say that is because I have discovered now that in the last five years, 
in many Christian churches, the study of eschatology, the last days, is almost a last priority on many of their to-do list. And yet Paul, when he came to Thessalonica to these new believers, he wrote to them and he said to them that I reminded you of the things that must take place before the coming of the Lord. And he was just with them for a very short period of time. The return of Jesus Christ is a core doctrine of the Christian faith. And revelation is insight into those days working up until that day in which he returns. Are we going to understand all of the details of Revelations perfectly? No, we're not. And that allows room for discussion, conversations, working it out, thinking it out. But in hopes, again, that in those conversations, it's on the forefront of our mind that the Lord could return at any moment. And that's what I hope we've established here tonight.